Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 11, going to verse 14. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Thanks so much, Lachlan. Uh, good morning, everybody. Um, do keep that passage open, and on the inside of your notice sheet, you'll find um, a, a short outline, which will help you if you want to uh, take notes or follow along as we're looking at this passage together. Um, when you think of Jesus Christ, what image comes into your mind? What, what mental image springs to your mind when you think about Jesus? Or if you're not a very visual thinker, how do you conceive of him? What description uh, uh, best matches him in your thinking. Perhaps at this time of year, we think of Jesus as the baby in a manger, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Or perhaps the first image that springs to mind is as the miracle worker, the healer, uh, raising the dead, healing the sick, gathering disciples. Or perhaps you think of him on the cross, bearing the punishment for sin, or emerging from the tomb, risen and glorious. Do you think of him as saviour, as lord, as judge, as friend. Of course, all of those are true and wonderful descriptions of Jesus that we need to cling on, uh, cling on to and reflect on. But today, I want to offer you a view of Jesus, a mental image of him that I think is a bit more unusual. It's certainly not the image of Jesus that springs to my mind very often, uh, but it's the image given to us in this passage. And if we grasp this picture of who Jesus is, if we add it to our mental database of who Jesus is and what he's done, it'll be a tremendous help to us, I think, as we strive to keep trusting in him, and it may just free us from a life of guilt and shame. That's my task this morning as we get back into the book of Hebrews. Let me remind you of the context of this letter. The author's writing to a local church made up largely of Christians from a Jewish background, and he's very worried about them. He's worried because faced with the grind of living day after day for Jesus in the face of persecution, in the face of temptation and suffering, some of them are showing signs of letting go of their faith in Jesus. They were drifting back to what was comfortable and familiar to them. In their case, the rites and rituals and ways of life under the old covenant, under the law of Moses. And all the way through this letter, the author's been showing them what a terrible mistake that would be. Not because the Old Covenant is bad. No, the Old Covenant's given by God, and it's very, very good. But as the author has been showing them, the Old Testament itself says that the Old Covenant was never designed to be the permanent way that God's people were to relate to him. No, it pointed forward to something better to come. It pointed forward to Jesus Jesus fulfills and perfects every element of the Old Covenant, as we've been seeing so far in this series. He offers a, a better exodus, a freedom from our slavery to sin. 
He offers a better priesthood. He is the great high priest who is both sympathetic and sinless. So he invites us to draw near to God in a way which could never happen under the old covenant. And in the intervening chapters, the author has said that that means the old covenant is no longer the way God relates to his people. It's been rendered obsolete and replaced with a new covenant made with and by Jesus Christ. And so if we want to relate to God, there's no hope to be found in that old covenant anymore. It's to be found in Jesus alone. And so his point has been, cling to Jesus, don't go back to that old way of life. And in our passage today, the author zeroes in on the activity of the old covenant priests. He wants us to think some more about the sacrifices they offered. He's going to show us that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is so much better than the sacrifices offered under the old covenant. He wants to persuade his readers not to go back to those sacrifices, but to stick with Jesus. And to do that, first he wants us to see that the work of the old covenant priests was about restless activity. Look with me at verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. I wonder if you have a job which is the same thing every day. Perhaps you've done work in a factory or on a production line, or you've been a warehouse worker or a McDonald's chef or something. Not bad jobs necessarily, but they're jobs where every day is likely to be the same. You're on your feet for most of the day doing the same thing over and over again. And those seem to be, uh, seem to me to be among the most draining jobs that uh, you can have. If, you, if you've got a job like that, come and tell me afterwards. I'd be uh, interested to see what it's, hear what it's like. But whatever job you do have, I really struggle to think of a more draining and demanding job than being an old covenant priest. Let's imagine it for a moment. You drag your weary body out of bed for yet another day. You sharpen your knives for the thousandth time. You put on your robes of office, wander down to the temple to put the coffee on. And then you see them coming. People queuing up. Each with a lead holding a goat or a bull or a ram or a sheep. Or perhaps they're carrying a cage with doves in it or something. And you know what you'll be doing today. You'll be on your feet all day, dawn to dusk, killing all those animals. Sacrificing all those animals, sacrificing them as sin offerings and guilt offerings, offerings made by sinful and guilty people who know that because of their sin they deserve death and so they bring an animal instead to die in their place. And once you've done, once you're done, you take off your bloodstained clothes, you wash, you flop into bed and as you go to sleep you realise you're going to have to do it all again the next day and the next day and every day until you die And then when you die, your son will have to do it. And so do you hear the sense of toil and drudgery in the words in verse 11? Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices. See, the old covenant system was gruesome and wearying. And we might be wondering, what did it all achieve? Perhaps the priest himself thought that as they went to sleep at night. Perhaps in a flash of insight, perhaps he thought... What is this achieving? Surely this isn't working. That's exactly the point the author makes in verse 11. These sacrifices can never take away sins. We should perhaps pause here and answer a question that might be brewing in people's minds. If those old covenant sacrifices, all those guilt offerings and sin offerings that are asked for in the old covenant in the Old Testament, if the sacrifices didn't really take away sins, then what were they for? What did they actually do? 
We've skipped over the part of Hebrews that's, that, where that's been explained, so I'll summarize it for us. The author of Hebrews gives us two main reasons for the sacrificial system. The first is back in chapter 9, verse 13. Just flip back there with me. It's one page over. Chapter 9, verse 13 says, The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. Remember, God had chosen Israel to be his special people. He put his presence in their midst in the temple. He made a covenant, a solemn agreement with his people. And that covenant had been sealed by the blood of animals. But all the way through the old covenant, it's clear that being a member of this covenant doesn't change you on the inside. At the very beginning of the covenant in in Deuteronomy, Moses mourns that although the people are pledging to obey God, their their hearts aren't really in it. At the very end of the covenant, the prophet Ezekiel says that the people honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. It's an external covenant. It's an arrangement between God and the nation of Israel that maintains a sort of peace between God and his people, but doesn't reach into their hearts. And so these sacrifices did a job because they sort of kept that old external covenant going. They were required by God to maintain his presence with his people in the temple to allow him to be their God and them to be his people, but this was a relationship at arm's length. The people had all the symbols of God dwelling with them, the temple in Jerusalem, the rites and rituals, the animal sacrifices, which all had to be externally clean, if you remember. And those sacrifices maintained that relationship, but it was outward and external. It didn't change the hearts. So that's the first thing the old covenant system did. It it cleansed you on the outside. The second reason for those sacrifices is in chapter 10, verse 3. I think that's on the same page in our Bibles. Where it says, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. Because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see the point? The sacrifices were a reminder of sins. The fact that every single time you sinned and at other regular points throughout the year of the nation, animal sacrifices had to be offered kept the reality of sin at the forefront of people's minds. It's very hard to become complacent about sin, I think, to fail to take it seriously if every time you do it, you have to take one of your sheep, which is a precious resource as well as a living thing, and watch it being slaughtered in front of your eyes. It would keep it fresh, wouldn't it? Of course, what that meant in practice was that the sacrifices weren't offered nearly as often as they should have been. But even then, the the, the annual sacrifices of the Day of Atonement, when the whole uh, nation gathered to confess the fact that they were sinners who deserved death, that would speak to you, you would think, wouldn't it? Of the reality and seriousness of sin, it was a reminder. But it would also tell you that that sin hadn't been dealt with yet. As it, first, it says in verse 2, chapter 10, verse 2, if the sacrifices took away sin, well, you could stop offering the sacrifices. But they didn't. A bull cannot stand for a human being. Killing a goat won't cleanse your heart. The sacrifices were necessary to maintain the peace between Israel and God and to remind them of their sin. But they simply didn't work to take sin away. And you can see it. You can see it in the toil and the drudgery of the old covenant priest on his feet, day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again. It's often said that the definition of insanity is repeatedly doing the same thing and expecting a different result. Well, the priests were definitely sane. They were doing what God required. 
And yet before Jesus, all that meant was a life of restless activity. And the author's point to his hearers is, why do you want to go back to that? Why would you abandon faith in Jesus to go back to a religious ritual that simply doesn't work? And we might nod our heads and agree with that, because for most of us, the right to the old covenant, killing a sheep every time we sin, that's not something that I'm particularly tempted by. I'm not going to go back to that, probably. And yet we have to acknowledge that restless activity of one sort or another is a real temptation for us. You see, in life, we're used to the idea that if you want to get ahead, you have to work hard. We tell our children that if they put their minds to it, they can accomplish anything. We read books on increased efficiency and productivity. We keep our fingers in as many different pies as possible. We try to get noticed uh, by the boss so we get even more responsibility. We try to please as many people as we can. Now, don't get me wrong, there's, there's much to be said for working hard and productivity and trying to please your boss. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But many people in our world today, many people in our church perhaps, can testify to the exhaustion of a life of restless activity, of incessantly trying to please people, to keep up appearances, to run even faster on the hamster wheel of life until we simply collapse. It's something our modern technological worldview does little to help us with, which is a topic that growth groups are going to be exploring in the new year. But it's very easy, in one way or another, to import that mindset into our relationship with God. To think that time spent reading the Bible plus our hours spent serving at church multiplied by the number of friends we've shared the gospel with this week divided by the number of times we've sinned today equals how much God loves me. Again, it's not that those things are bad. Reading the Bible, serving others, being part of church, fighting sin, sharing the gospel, those are wonderful things to do. But Christians throughout history have understood those things to be means of grace things we get to do in order to enjoy more fully the blessing of what God has done for us. But it's very easy for us in our attitude to turn these means of grace into means of guilt, turning turning them from things we gladly get to do into things we've manically got to do because we rest our relationship with God on our own performance. We never put it like that at all, would we? But it is so easy to throw ourselves into restless Christian activity because we're fundamentally unsure that God loves and accepts us. We think we get right with God the same way we get on in life, by activity, by effort, by work, by productivity, by doing things which God will notice and reward us for. And so the means of grace become means of guilt. Things which are designed to do as good become things which we feel are doing as harm because we're never really sure we've done enough for God. Well, if that's our mindset, the author wants us to have a completely different view by showing us that picture of Jesus that I mentioned at the beginning that might not be the natural one we have in our heads. He wants us to see Jesus' completed work. As we come to the end of the year, um, we often find ourselves looking back and reflecting over the past 12 months and perhaps asking the question, what did I accomplish this year? I never spend too long reflecting on that personally because the answer is too depressing. I'm sure I'm not alone, at least I hope I'm not alone, in feeling a general sense of dissatisfaction about my own achievements. At the beginning of the day, I fill up my to-do list and maybe I get to tick off one or two things, but at the end of the day, the list seems longer than at the beginning. My house is never really clean, it's full of unfinished jobs, unpainted surfaces, unweeded garden beds. 
Perhaps you have had the sense recently of a job well done. You, you started a job, you worked steadily and smoothly through it, and at the end you were completely satisfied with your labours. But I think we all know how rare that is. With that in mind, look at the picture of Jesus that we're given in verse 12. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Here is the image to put into your mental database of Jesus, sitting comfortably in an armchair. Do you think of Jesus like that? You should. The Bible tells you you should think of him like that, that Jesus is sitting down, sitting down comfortably. Theologians call this Jesus' session. That just means his time of sitting down. Jesus is seated, and that is very very good news for two reasons. The first reason it's good news is that it means that Jesus is the undisputed king. These verses, verses 12 and 13, are practically a quote from Psalm 110, which has been mentioned a few times in Hebrews so far. In that psalm, God speaks to his chosen king and tells him that he will defeat every enemy that throws itself at him. Nothing will overthrow his throne. And you can see that in the image of verse 13. Remember, Jesus is seated comfortably in an armchair. All he needs to be completely comfortable is a footstool. It's the one thing missing from this image of complete rest, somewhere to put his feet up. And here his enemies are going to become his footstool. He will rest his feet on the backs of those he has defeated. But notice how this final victory will be won. Verse 13, since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. He has nothing further to do. No more battles to be won. Everything needed has already been accomplished. And we saw that at the beginning of this series in chapter two, when we read that Jesus has comprehensively defeated the devil. The devil who held the power of death over people, who tempted us to put ourselves under the judgment of God by sinning and then kept us there by inspiring the fear of death in us. He has been completely disarmed. He holds no power over Christians whatsoever. Why? Because Jesus' death in our place has removed God's judgment upon us. We no longer face the penalty of death because Jesus has taken it for us and therefore the devil has no weapon against us. We no longer need to be led astray by the fear of death. The devil is toothless and uh, uh, has no arms. The cross is the defeat of the devil and the defeat of all who are in service to him. And so what is happening now? Well, look on the screen with me at these words from Revelation 12, which we saw a few weeks ago, where it says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. You see, the devil is still right now accusing the brothers, trying to tempt Christians back into the fear of death through preying on our sense of guilt and unworthiness before God. 
But we can resist the devil by clinging to the truth of the gospel. As it says in Revelation 12, by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. He is disarmed. He is toothless and weaponless in the face of the gospel. He's furious and angry. He still can do his damage, I suppose, because he knows, it's because he knows he's defeated. He knows that his time is short. He knows that his future is utter subjugation under Jesus' feet. Now, I said that's good news, and it is good news for all those who believe in Jesus. You might feel as though you have everything stacked against you as a Christian. You live in a weak body, in a fallen world, and you might feel beset by things that seem as though they will inevitably drag you away from Jesus. Your own sin, the hard and sad circumstances that you face, the mockery and scorn of other people, perhaps even people very close to you. And knowing that there are dark and malign spiritual forces lying behind those things might make you despair even further. But you must know this morning, those things will not have the final say. Jesus not only will win, he has won. His cross has defeated your sin, removed your guilt and shame, secured your place in a new creation free of suffering, and means that no one, who currently attacks Jesus or his church will ultimately succeed. You need not fear those who attack you because their future is to be Jesus' footrest. But that tells us that this might not be good news for everyone. It could be that you this morning are someone who does not currently bow the knee to Jesus. You don't want to take him seriously or you don't believe his claims. You want to be the king of your own life and you don't want someone else to rule over you. If that's you, and I take no pleasure in saying this, this passage tells you that Jesus will rule over you one day. If that's you, I want to urge you this morning to make peace with Jesus, to come to his cross and submit to his victory, to appeal to him for forgiveness and mercy. He is gracious and kind. He will forgive you and welcome you. But his offer of grace will not stand forever. Do it soon before it's too late. The session of Jesus, the sitting down of Jesus is good news because it means he's the undisputed king of the universe. But it's also good news, secondly, because it means he has finished his work. That's why we sit down, isn't it? Because the day's work is done. What has Jesus done? Verse 12, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. You see the difference between the restless activity of verse 11 and the completed work of verse 12. In verse 11, many priests offered multiple sacrifices day after day, year after year, and none of them worked. So they had to keep standing at their jobs. In verse 12, one priest offered one sacrifice for all time, a sacrifice which actually pays for sin, and then sat down. There's nothing more to be done. Jesus' death has absorbed all of God's righteous judgment on our sin, every sinful thought, word, and deed, past, present, and future. Just as there is nothing more to be done to secure his victory over the devil, so there is nothing more to be done to secure the total forgiveness of his people. And that means, finally, that Jesus offers us today an invitation to rest. We've recently uh, had our bathroom redone. And one of the new features in our bathroom is a demisting mirror. It's very nice. It has a little switch that warms the surface of the mirror up so that when you have a shower, the steam from the shower doesn't settle on the mirror and it remains clear. It's very swish. 
Um, I've learned, however, that it's something of a mixed blessing. On the plus side, after I've had a shower and I, I need to shave, I can see my face clearly. On the negative side, after I've had a shower and I need to shave, I can see my face clearly. It's, it's, not, it's not always a pretty sight. Well, that implies that it sometimes is a pretty sight, which is nonsense. I'm getting a bit older. It's starting to show. I don't enjoy looking at my reflection at all. And that same sense is true as I look inward as well. In my Christian life, by God's grace, I've made some progress in my battle against sin. But there are many areas where I still fall into old bad habits, and I appear to have picked up some new ones along the way. New situations and new challenges reveal sinful attitudes and patterns that have lain dormant inside me, just waiting to rear their ugly heads. And often when I read the Bible, I'm struck by how far short I fall to the goodness and perfection of Jesus. Perhaps you're like me. So imagine, if you will, looking into a beautifully demisted mirror that accurately reflects your heart. And pick, if you would, two adjectives to describe it. What are you going to go for? Guilty, shameful, dirty, disappointing, wretched, pathetic, unworthy. Read verse 14 with me and see which adjectives God applies to you. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That is God's description of those who belong to Jesus, perfect and holy. How can God possibly say that about us? Well, in the book of Hebrews, the language of perfection is all to do with being qualified to approach God, qualified to enjoy relationship with him, qualified to draw near and dwell in his presence without fear and with total acceptance. In chapter 5, Jesus was made perfect through his total obedience to the Father. He is perfect by virtue of being completely sinless. And so he can draw near to God and remain with him. But the breathtaking truth of Hebrews is that Jesus' death on the cross qualifies us to do the same, to be perfect as Jesus, so that we also may draw near. Look back with me again to chapter 9, verse 13. We saw this earlier. I'm going to read verse 13 and 14. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? We saw before how the many repeated sacrifices offered under the old covenant didn't really deal with our sin. All they did was cleanse people's externals, their outsides. But see the difference there between those sacrifices and the one perfect sacrifice of Jesus. The animal sacrifices had to be externally unblemished, outwardly clean, so that they could make God's people outwardly clean. So what happens when a sacrifice is offered which is inwardly clean? What happens when a perfectly sinless man with a completely clear conscience offers himself in the place of guilty, unworthy sinners like us? That sacrifice makes us inwardly clean, cleanses our consciences, cleanses us deep down. Often we feel, don't we, that if people could only see the real us... If people could see the depths of our sin, the secret shameful thoughts of our hearts, they'd recoil from us in horror. And yet God does see that far down. 
He sees even the areas of our hearts that are sealed off and unknown to ourselves. And yet because we belong to Jesus, because his sacrifice is sufficient to cover all of our guilt and shame, no matter how deep God looks, he sees the sinless obedience, the clear conscience of his beloved son, Jesus. That is what makes us perfect. Qualified to draw near to God, to dwell with him, to know that we are loved and accepted by him. The same is true of holiness. In chapter 10, verse 14, it's translated as being made holy. Just, I don't, by the way, I don't think that in this case is referring to the process by which Christians become more and more like Jesus in their actions and behavior. We are made holy in that way, and throughout the whole New Testament, that's, that's taught, and it will be taught in Hebrews 12. But I think in Hebrews 10, verse 14, it's not talking about that. It's not talking about us growing in holiness. I think it's talking about a single permanent change of status. And that's because of what it says in verse 10. Look at chapter 10, verse 10, where it says, By that will, that is the the obedience of Jesus, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You see, under the old covenant, holiness meant being set apart for God, being fit to be in his presence and belonging to him and dedicated to his use and his service. That's what holiness is. The temple was holy. The priests were holy. The utensils, the knives and things that the priests used in their sacrifices were holy because they were dedicated to God's use. But any of those things could lose their holiness. Through contact with sin or uncleanness, through misuse, things that were holy could be made unholy, could become profane. A person or a thing or even a whole nation could lose their holy status, could become something unworthy, something unfit for God, something only fit to be cast out of his presence. And that sense of uneasy holiness permeates the whole of the old covenant. The sense sense that the relationship the people enjoyed with God was contingent somehow, dependent on their behavior, and therefore a fragile and temporary thing. That is, by the way, the point of chapter 8 of Hebrews. You want to look back on that this week. But now, because of the obedient life and perfect sacrifice of Jesus, that sense of fragility and impermanence has gone. Because our standing with God depends on his performance and not ours, our holiness is a permanent, unchanging, once-for-all change of status. We'll still sin, of course. But for those who are living lives of of repentant faith in Jesus, our sin cannot change that status. It does not change who we are in Christ. It does not lose our holiness from us. It does not change what God sees when he looks at us. No matter how deep he looks into our hearts and our consciences, he sees the perfect obedience and the holy sacrifice of his beloved son, Jesus. And that's not because he's ignoring our sin or minimizing it or turning a blind eye to it, but because he has justly dealt with it once for all on the cross. So what does this mean for us if we're trusting in Jesus today? Well, the way to get the answer to that question is to ask this. What does it mean for Jesus himself? Jesus is perfect and holy. He's finished the work of salvation. And therefore, he can be at rest with God, sat down comfortably in an armchair, comfortably at ease in his presence, secure in the knowledge of his love and acceptance with the Father. And what it means for Jesus 
is what it means for us. We are perfect and holy in him. We are trusting in his finished work of salvation and therefore we can be at rest with God, completely at ease in his presence, secure in the knowledge of our love and acceptance with the Father. In the New Testament, many times in the New Testament, it talks about Christians being raised and seated with Christ. We can no more be cast out of God's presence or lose our place in his good books than Jesus can. And so this is an invitation to rest. Not to be inactive or passive, even though Jesus is at rest, he is still very active, of course. But it's an invitation to see our activity, to view those means of grace as means of grace. We don't need to read the Bible to tick off an obligation to God. We get to read the Bible to hear the loving encouragement and challenge and discipline of a father who loves us. We don't need to belong to a church and serve others because we want people to think well of us. We get to belong to a church and serve others because through that we can grow and we can be a blessing to other people. We don't need to battle sin in our lives because if we don't conquer it, God will reject us. We get to battle sin in our lives with the loving help of God's Spirit and the promise of the gracious forgiveness of God's Son when we fail. And ultimately, throughout all the struggles of life, the battles against sin, the sufferings of normal life in this broken world, the mockery of those who stand against Jesus, we can have the sure and certain expectation and hope of a welcome into the new creation to enjoy sitting in the presence of God at rest forever. Well, let's conclude. Hopefully, for many of us, this Christmas season has been and will be a time of rest. I hope it has been already. I've been praying that our church family would enjoy some of the blessings of God's good creation this week. Family, fun, food, gifts, time away from work. Perhaps time enjoying nature, time in God's word. It's a blessing to experience and enjoy some of those tokens of God's goodness. We need times of rest as human beings in a restless world. But all of these things, brilliant though they are, are only shadows and hints of the true rest that we can have now through the forgiveness of our sins, through the cross of Christ, and that we, if we are trusting in Jesus, will experience in its fullness, forever with Jesus in the new creation. So as we rest this Christmas time, or perhaps as we find it hard to rest this Christmas time, let's remember that true rest is available to all. If you haven't taken hold of that rest, please do so. Please come and talk to me afterwards. I'd love to help you think about that more. And if we have, let's spur each other on to take hold of that rest through faith in Jesus, through faith in his one perfect, finished, sacrifice on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're sorry, Father, when we turn your grace into means of guilt, where we make it about us and our restless activity. We're sorry for when we've based our relationship with you on our own performance and either been driven to pride or to despair. Please help us to remember that Jesus has offered one perfect sinless sacrifice for sins. Thank you that he never ever once gave in to sin. Thank you that he was perfect on the inside with a clear conscience and a pure heart.
And that means that his sacrifice can cleanse us on our inside, to cleanse our conscience and forgive our sin deep down. Thank you that Jesus Christ is risen and seated with you, accepted and loved by you forever. And thank you that we who belong to Jesus can be the same, are the same, accepted and loved by you forever. We pray we deeply enjoy that truth this time. Help us to know that our guilt has been taken away and our sins are forgiven. Help us enjoy the finished work of Christ. Help us hold out that finished work to others and help us spur each other on to keep clinging to Jesus and not be tempted away. Thank you once again, Father, for your grace and mercy to us who don't deserve it. In Jesus' name, amen.